So glad to be here with you today on this first Sunday of Advent. Uh, if we haven't met before, I'm David Lewis. I'm the worship pastor here at Living Hope. Typically, I'm up here leading the musical portions of our worship, but today I'm really grateful to be able to come and preach. Um, it is the first Sunday of Advent. This is probably one of the busiest seasons of our year in worship ministry. And uh, on top of everything else, it's already busy in the Christmas season for uh, everyone, really. Um, it's also a season that I really love because of what we get to do and what we get to think about this time of year. You know, Advent is a season of just hopeful expectation. Today is the, the candle of hope that we've lit, in the, lit today. Um, you know, there's the, the candle of hope and love and joy and peace, and we'll be walking through that throughout the season of Advent. But today, we're talking about hope, and hope is the overarching theme of Advent. It's a time when we celebrate the hope that we have because of the first Advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior, into the world. And as we also await the second Advent, the glorious return of Jesus Christ to come and make all things new, we long for that. Throughout the church uh, history, a lot of times Advent is actually a, a time that it's a little more of a time of lament, as seemed a little bit more like Lent even, where uh, we're just waiting and longing and groaning with all of creation for, for God to come and return. But uh, we, we don't take it quite that deep and dark. We, we like to take time to, to rejoice in the midst of that. We do want to be longing and waiting for Jesus to come, but we, we like it to be a joyful time. And especially this year, we decided we, we wanted to name this series Rejoice. We wanted it to be something filled with music. Over the last 10 years, we've uh, Advent's been a musical time in the life of our, our church as well. We, uh, our worship ministry team has, over the last 10 years, um, made music videos with, with Advent songs, not necessarily Christmas songs, but Advent songs, songs that are helping us think about what does it mean to, to have Jesus come back? What does it mean to have our hope in that? And so that, all that's online, actually. We released a lot of that this week. And if you want to go check out and see uh, earlier uh, you know, versions of some of our folks on our worship ministry team, go do that. Hopefully, you can enjoy some of that, that music. Over the last two years, also, we did a podcast uh, called Listen. It's a contemplative, meditative, uh, devotional podcast. And we're going to actually continue that this year. We're not going to be producing as much new content for that. We're going to be reutilizing content from the last couple of years. But we've had so many people say, wow, that was such a meaningful part of the Advent Christmas uh, experience for us. We want to keep that going. So we're going to do that again this year. You should, uh, if you're on our newsletter, you should, be, you should have an email in your inbox with a lot of those resources already today. As well, uh, this year, uh, our worship team has been recording and writing some original music. Some, we've, we've done a little bit, very little of that in the past, but this year we've taken a stab at writing some original songs to celebrate Advent, so we'd love for you to go check those out as well. So I think that's all of my logistics. I don't want this to be a promo at all. We want to, to preach. Um, in the theme of hopeful rejoicing, in music especially, we thought it'd be fitting this year to to use some psalms from the lectionary. The psalms are the songbook of the Bible, and the lectionary is, is just an order of, of scriptures that are read and, and, and talked about in churches all over the world. And we wanted that to be the, the basis of our Advent series this year. A lot of times we do pick scriptures from the lectionary as either our scripture readings for Advent candle readings or for sermon texts. But uh, today, we wanted to start and use these lectionary texts from the psalms so that we could have some songs that encourage us to... Uh, Call out to the Lord for him to come, return, and make all things new. As we join with the church all over the world today in reading from Psalm 80, I'm going to ask you guys to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 80. I pray that this song will help us direct our hopes to their appropriate place. Psalm 
It's a little out of the norm for our sermon text, but I'm going to ask you to read a part of the psalm with me. A lot of uh, the psalms are what we call antiphonal. They're back and forth, call and response. You know, we do a lot of that call and response in our liturgy as well. Earlier in the service, we did some of that. There's a leader that says something and then someone responds. And, you know, for some of you, if you didn't grow up in an environment that did something like that, you might think that's weird or or whatever, but it is just, we do that because it's a way to engage our brains in a little bit of a different way. Instead of just reading something, it, you, your brain kind of trans, translates that a different way if you have someone call and respond. So it's just a unique way to engage. Uh, uncool dads might say that it hits different, but I would never say that. Um, before we read this entire psalm, uh, I definitely want to start with the instructions. Typically, I would skip over um, the instructions on a psalm, maybe in a public reading, but I think today they're important for the context. So let's start in Psalm 80. When it comes to a part that's uh, bold and underlined, you guys read that along with me from the screen. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, and let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. So go back in time with me, I guess at this point, 32 years, which is really crazy. I was 15 years old. I just turned 47 not too long ago. Um, Came to Living Hope when I was 30, so I've been here 17 years, which is also crazy and amazing at the same time. I see many faces here that are the same faces after all those years, and it's a, it's a joy to have been serving here with my family for all this time with, with many of you. Love that. When I was 15 years old, um, I got my driver's license. I think back in the day, that's when you could get your driver's license. I don't know that that's still the case. But at 15, I got my driver's license in October, and so I had one singular hope for Christmas. What was it? It was a Toyota Celica GT. And uh, one of our guys back here said, that's the most Mississippi thing I've ever heard. Um, I don't know. That was my dream car at the time. And I thought, well, that's within reason. It's not like a Porsche or anything. It's, it's actually, it's a cool high school sports car. Maybe I could get that. 
But being the, the son of two school teachers, that was probably not a realistic expectation or a hope. But, um, you know, still it was there. It was my hope. And Christmas was coming along, and you go through the day, and, and you know, it's like, yeah, that's probably not going to happen, but I still have this hope. I'm holding out. And you know how it works. You get to the end of the day where there's like the last gift, and that's the big gift, right? You're waiting to open that. That's got to be the best one. And so I, I go to open this gift. I open it up and looking for these car keys. And what do I see? Some Jabot jeans, <laughs> which actually were really cool at the time. You know, they were very expensive and probably over $100 or something, which in 1991 was pretty excessive, especially for a school teacher salary. Um, so it was, it was a cool gift, but it was not the Toyota Celica that I was hoping for. And so I, you know, after... Uh, and that's not me, by the way. That's, uh, I'm not nearly as cool as that guy. But, you know, I wore my Jabot jeans while my mom dropped me off at high school as a freshman. And so uh, that was fine. But, you know, the longer that went on, the longer I had this kind of hope in my mind that, like, you know, every birthday that came by, every Christmas, every Father's Day for some reason, like anything I could think of, it would just be like, please, let me get a car. Um, for some reason, they, this hope and this expectation that I had started to develop actually into kind of like this attitude that I had, and it just made me more and more like upset that my mom was taking me to school every day. She was a school teacher, you know, would take, take me and drop me off on her way to school. And, uh, at, you know, like I said, I was getting to be a kind of a teenage punk, and at some point, this kind of welled up at me and, um, you know, got into it with my mom about like, I really am tired of you taking me to school and dropping me off. And after we went through this a bit, she was like, well, that's cool. If you don't want me to take you to school, you can ride the bus. And I was like, but I don't want to ride the bus. There's weird people on the bus that steal my beef jerky and they and I have to get up like an hour early and stand in the cold. I don't want to do that. And she was like, that's not my problem. And so for the next few months, I got up and rode uh, the bus. I, I was at the end of this rural route outside Grenada and I think I was Either the first or the last person, I can't remember, but it was the longest. That's so I had to get up super early and wait for this bus. And so that was just this time where I had gotten into it with my mom. I was separated from her. I was experiencing the punishment of misplaced hopes. I had these misplaced hopes and these expectations that led me to this place that I really didn't want to be. And, uh, you know, after a while, uh, after a few months, me and my mom kind of sorted through all of those things. And then I finally, finally, a year later, got my dream car, uh, a 93 Geo Metro Aqua Metallic, which negated any coolness that the Jabos had to offer. The, uh, that was not my dream car, but it did get me to school back and forth. But after I made up with my mom, you know, uh, our relationship was good again at that point. But, you know, as I think back upon that time, I was experiencing this, this punishment, this season of being distraught because of these misplaced hopes and these expectations that I had built up. You know, I'm thinking about it now. My mom died just a few years ago after a long battle with Alzheimer's. And, you know, what I wouldn't trade now to have my mom for 15 minutes, right? To take me to school or to take me to work. Um, but you don't think about those things at, at that kind of time. You know, you're thinking about how cool you are in, in high school, and, and that's normal and okay, but these misplaced hopes, sometimes we can get so myopic in the things that we want, the desires that we have, the things that we think will fulfill us. As we look at hope today, I want to see how I think the psalm is actually calling us to something different than that, 
See how this song from a couple thousand years ago can lead us to hope in God's power, that, it could, that we could hope in God's plans and promises, and that we can ultimately hope in God's presence. Hope in God's power, hope in God's plans and promises, and hope in God's presence. From Psalm 80, I started reading uh, those musical instructions, and those are there for a reason. You know, if you're a musician, uh, the top of the page always has instructions that help you know, like, okay, how fast is the song? What, are we, what key are we playing in? It helps for that to sound good. These, uh, these instructions there contain, um, it says this by, uh, said it goes to the tune of the lilies. We don't know what that sounds like anymore. It's just uh, some tune that they, they had, but it, it's very specific that it was uh, a song of Asaph. And that's important because Asaph was a writer of songs, a psalmist, but also the temple singers in Jerusalem were also known as the Asaphites. So sometimes if it says a song of Asaph, it may mean that Asaph actually wrote it, or it may mean that the Asaphite choir wrote that, that some other people in that choir were writing that. And it, this, that's probably the case in this particular instance, and that's important because the context clues in the psalm itself give us uh, this, uh, this 8th century B.C., that this is where this uh, psalm is placed, is 8th century B.C. And that's really important uh, in the context of, of where this lands. Every piece of art is made in a time and place, and the context for where that is helps the people who are enjoying that art understand it and appreciate it. And so it's important for us to know what's going on at the time of the 8th century B.C., around the time of Isaiah the prophet. You probably know Isaiah. Important to know is that after King Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel started to break apart. See, the northern kingdom of Israel was made up of 10 tribes. They broke apart from the southern kingdom of Judah, which was just the, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And they each had their own king. They were kingdom divided. They were uh, tribes together, cousins, family. But now they're at odds with each other. And not only that, if you look at the history during this period, basically you can see that all the kings of the northern kingdom had forsaken God. They had led the people into idolatry. Only about half of the kings, even of the southern kingdom, uh, the Bible says, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But almost none of the northern kings did that. This psalm was written during one of these particular seasons in which the king of Judah was actually leading the people to worship the living God, the true God who had brought them out of Egypt. But even in this time, everyone is starting to see the decay all around. And people are seeing this once beautiful kingdom, this once flourishing nation start to fall apart. The nation is weakened. And the neighboring Assyrians see this as an opportunity to expand their territory. And they begin to wage war against the northern kingdom with their sights set on laying siege to the capital city of Samaria. And so that's the context of this song. And this choir in Jerusalem, the Asaphite choir in the temple the capital of Judah is singing as a prayer for God to show up and do something. God, show up and do something because of what's going on in the northern kingdom. They're afraid. They need their God to show up, to come and help. Even though they're at odds, they're still family, and their family's under attack, and they don't want to see that happen. They don't want to see bloodshed with their other tribes. But even more than that, they're afraid. Because if the northern kingdom falls to Assyria, you know where they're coming next. They're coming to us. So God, please do something. And what are they asking God to do? They're asking God to come and save them. They're placing their hope in God's power. So this is a song, right? 
We went through it together. Like most songs, it has different sections, verses, and choruses. Most of you probably know the difference between that. But choruses are that center section of the song that is sort of the, the repetitive part that everybody knows. You know, like Brown Eyed Girl, it's the sha-la-la-la-la part, you know, that everybody sings along with. I don't know any of the other words, but I get to that part and everybody sings. Like this morning when we sang Promises, it's like, yada, 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 great is your faithfulness to me. Everybody jumps in and sings. That's the chorus. And so in this particular song, they, it has this repeating refrain that, we, that you guys actually all said together. Um, it said, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. It would go through a verse and say, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the call, that chorus, this repetitive thing that they keep coming back to. This phrase, restore us, it, it might also be um, translated, turn us back. Not just restore us, but God, turn us back. Turn us back to you. Let us find our hope in you. Let us find our hope in you and your power alone. And actually, if you look, it, it escalates each time. We don't know exactly what the music does. Like I said, we don't know what that, that tune sounds like. But definitely, lyrically, the intensity keeps ratcheting up throughout this song. It starts with, restore us, O God. And the next time, it's, restore us, O God of hosts. And this is a phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament in a lot of places to, to describe the living God, to acknowledge God's sovereignty over all things. It basically means that God rules over all the armies of heaven and earth, that there's no place where his control does not reach. And then at the very end, it's, it's not just restore us, O God of hosts, it's restore us, Lord God of hosts. And the word Lord, there's the translation of Yahweh, the holy name of God. And they're acknowledging God's holiness and his power. And they're calling on him who has no equal to come and to save them. See, the misplaced hopes of the northern kingdom were leading the people away from God who had directed their steps. Beginning of it, come give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who leads Joseph like a flock. This God that had directed the steps of the people of Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land, these people had begun trusting in themselves, in their own wisdom. When things came down that they didn't like, when the kingdom wasn't run the way they envisioned, they broke away and began building their own kingdom. They started fulfilling their own desires. Functionally, they were saying, you know what, we can do this better ourselves. We want our own king, and in their pride, they had turned away from God. How many times do we do the same? You know, so much of the time when I run into adversity or something I don't like, immediately I start working on it, right? I immediately go to, how can I solve this? How can I leverage my intellect, my resources to make this happen? What can I do? I remember one time when I was on a, in, in India, I, I remember this being in a, in a church service and people just, uh, you know, the, the pastor asked, hey, does anybody want to share something that God's been doing in your life this week? And I remember this one lady uh, got up and, and she just said, you know, my toilet wasn't working this week, and I couldn't afford to have anybody fixed it, so I just prayed over it, and the next day it started working. And I was like, wow, what an amazing story. I would never think to pray over my toilet. And then I'm like, why? You know, why would I not? Why would I not go to the Lord God? Why would I immediately, even something like that, it's such a small thing, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go to my research. I'm going to go to my intellect to solve this problem. But, but she went to the Lord of hosts to solve her toilet problem. What can I do? Placing our, our hope in God's power simply means acknowledging his sovereignty, asking him to free us 
Free us from the endless, fruitless cycle of trying to save ourselves, to come to him in humility, to say that we don't actually have what it takes, that we actually need the Lord of hosts to show up and do something that we can never do for ourselves. You know, next, the psalmist cries out for God's salvation based on a hope in his plans and his promises. Skipping over to verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. See, God had cleared this ground. This was his vine. This was his people that he loved and cared for. We have a good God with wise plans who wants good things for his people. And this psalm uses this vine metaphor to show God's great care for his people. He made a place for them. He led them to this promised land. He helped it grow into a great nation. And this was all in line with God's promises for them. He said that he would be their God. They would be his people. He would dwell with them. And while the people were following God's plan, they flourished. This nation became great. It grew into a strong and beautiful place. Then it says, why then, God, have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. I believe the psalmist here is kind of asking a rhetorical question. So he talks about this vine, and he knows that God cares for it, and, and he asks, why have you broken down its walls? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why are you letting these foreign invaders come in and tear apart the thing that you love so much? And why I think this is a, a rhetorical why is um, I think he knows exactly why, because it would, be, would have been pretty obvious that the northern kingdoms were not following God, that, that God was allowing judgment on Israel because they had stopped putting their hopes in him, that they had stopped putting their hopes in God's plans and promises. They had turned away from him and sought out their own desires. And just to make it clear, God says this through the prophet Isaiah. Remember, he was at that same time. Isaiah 5 what more could I have done for my vineyard than I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. And he expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he found cries of violence. See, Israel has failed miserably at keeping his side of the covenant. They said, all these things we will do, Lord. We will keep your law. And even though the wine was clear, the psalmist still appeals to God based on his mercy. He said, God, these were your plans. These are the people that you love. And he knew why God would allow this, but he still appeals to God's mercy, his unfailing love, his covenant promises to his people. He said, not only the psalmist asking for God to come in power and turn his people back, he's also asking God, God in 14, turn again, O God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. The psalmist wants us to place our God, I mean, place our hope in God's presence. 
This theme runs throughout the psalm. From the very beginning, where it talks about God enthroned on the cherubim. This is clearly Ark of the Covenant language. This is tabernacle language. God dwelling with his people. God's presence in the midst of his people. The choruses of these, uh, the psalm, not only speak of God's power, but his presence when they say, let your face shine on us. This would immediately remind them of the Aaronic blessing, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Give you peace. It would remind them of being led out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. And God was present with them. He led them with a pillar of fire by day, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire at night. He led them into the promised land. He went before them in battle. He cleared the ground for his vine. That's why the psalmist asks, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. The psalmist knows that their only hope lies in the fact that God is with them. If God's presence is with them, so the cry is, please God, please don't turn away from us. Don't walk away from us. Turn back, oh God. Don't just turn us back to you, but God, turn back to us and keep your hand on us because if you leave us, we have no hope. Keep your hand on us, Israel, the son that you love. You know, a couple years ago, we went through the book of Exodus, and uh, many of you are studying that now in your men's and women's Bible studies. We saw how God's desire throughout that was to dwell with his people, to be with them. And we also saw that God's presence was always tied to the obedience of his word. When, When the people turned to idolatry, God would remove his presence And with his presence, there's victory and flourishing, but outside his presence, there's destruction. So as we come to the end of this psalm, you may ask, what happens? So the northern kingdom is being assailed by Assyria. The people of Jerusalem are crying out. The temple is worshiping, asking God to restore them, to turn them back, to to save them. Well, even though Jerusalem was crying out to God for them to save Israel, God was true to his word. And we see no evidence that Israel's hope was ever reoriented. We, uh, we don't see that the people turned back to him. And the Assyrians laid siege to the city of Samaria and then dispersed the, 12, uh, the 10 tribes of Israel. So you might be thinking, why is this very hopeful this morning? Um, I thought this was about hope. It seems like we're asking God to do something and he doesn't do it. Well, the story's not quite over. You know, the northern kingdom was ravaged by the Assyrians. And they did eventually set their sights on the kingdom of Judah once that was done. And this was a few years later, but when the massive Assyrian army came to their gates, they were mocking them, and they were mocking their God. But in the midst of that, King Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He said, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. King Hezekiah prayed, and God answered. 2 Kings 19.35 says, And that night... The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. God slew the entire Assyrian army without them even having to fight. 
If you go back to Psalm 46, we sing a Shane and Shane song, uh, Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts. That song is a response to that story. In that psalm, it says, be still and know that I am God. I'm a God that, that, that breaks the bow and bends the spear. That causes wars to cease throughout the earth. Be still and know that I am God. It says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You see, God's power is worth hoping in because he's the Lord of hosts. He's mighty to save. God's plans and his promises are worth hoping in. He's a good father who loves his children. But without his presence, neither God's power or his promises are for us. But that's why Advent is so beautiful, right? That's why Christmas is so beautiful, because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the presence of God became available to anyone who would have faith in Jesus. The power of God, the promises of God, because Emmanuel is with us, because God's presence is with us, his power and his promises are for us. That's why we have hope today. I get so emotional when I preach. <laughs> it's so hard for me. I, I, sometimes when these come, things come out of my mouth for the first time, it's just like, mm. God's promises are for us. That's why we have hope. Jesus is the true shepherd who's come to lead us out of death. He's the son of man who came to seek and to save. That's what's lost. The good news of Jesus is the power of God unto salvation. The promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ, Paul tells us. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. In John chapter 15, Jesus said this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This vine that God planted, Jesus says, now that's me. And now God's people aren't just at a time and place. God's people now are, is everyone who's grafted into that vine. God's presence resides within us. It makes us clean, it makes us fruitful. But we must continue to abide in Christ because it's, we are so prone to have our hopes still easily misplaced. We have to nurture our need for God. We have to pursue God's presence in us. Even though it's there, we have to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Even as Christians, it's easy for our hopes to be misplaced. Because so many times we want God's power to be leveraged for our stuff, not his we want God's plans to line up with our plans. And I think it's a question we need to constantly be asking ourselves, what is our hope in today? As we think about the hope of Advent, the hope is that Jesus Christ has made it possible for the presence of God to be with us so that God's power and his promises are for us. But what is our hope in today, really? What is the thing that you could lose that would destroy you? What's the thing that you could gain that would fulfill all your desires. 
That's a misplaced hope if it's not in Jesus. What is our hope in today? Is it in some broken down kingdom that, that we desire that we could build for ourselves? Or is it in a kingdom that cannot be shaken? So what do we do with this? Just a quick point of application. Throughout the season of Advent, this is going to be a season that everything is going to be noisy and everything's going to be vying for your attention and your time. And I'm just going to say, just don't walk, run toward Jesus. You have to find your hope in the presence of Jesus and it will change your life. If you've never put your hope in Jesus, today is the day. If you've never put your trust in him, he's inviting you to experience his presence in your life today. If you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, I can't explain it to you, but it will change your life because he's good. And today there's many women after the service that would be outside these doors to your left that would love to meet with you, to pray with you, to answer any questions about faith that you might have. Also, our elders are outside these doors to your left today. We're going to have elder prayer. They'd love to meet with you, to pray with you, to tell you about Jesus. Is your hope in a doctor? Is your hope in what you can do for yourself? Jesus says, if anyone is sick, let the elders of the church pray for them. What's your hope in? Trust God at his word. Find a way to place your hope in Jesus through this season of Advent, whatever that means for you. Don't let this season drown out the hope with noise. One thing that uh, a couple years ago, I was doing a little cohort with some other pastors, and this one guy, he just said he had a little motto that was called Scripture Before Screens. And I was like, that's golden. Scripture Before Screens. I think if you did that, it will change your life. This year, we have our podcast. Like I said, we have this Listen podcast. If you want to use that, great. If you want to find an Advent devotional, something that would be helpful for you to walk through, just go Google Advent devotional. There's like a million of them out there. Find something. Like, which one? It doesn't really matter. If it's God's Word, it's going to be better than anything else you can find on Apple News. Our God is the only God who saves. The Lord God of hosts is with us. So let us cry out to Him to save us, to change us, to shape us, to restore us. We want to see lives of flourishing even in our day. I know we all have visions of what that might look like. But let us ask God to give us a vision of what his life of flourishing for us looks like. And as we ask for it, God, we say, turn us back, O Lord God of hosts, that we might find this life of flourishing in you, even in the midst of this enemy-occupied territory that we live in. God, restore us. Let your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Let us see your power in our day. Let us see it in our, our church. God, we want our, our nation to be saved. We want our, the people around us to know you and to have life and freedom. We long for that. But God, we also trust you. If our fate is like the fate of the northern kingdom, we trust you. And we trust that you are with us in the fire and that your kingdom cannot be shaken. So God, awaken in us faith to believe that again today. Strengthen us through the power of your spirit to abide in Christ that we might bear fruit. God, restore us and awaken your church for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.